You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. All right, and we're off. Hello. Hi. Uh, my name is David Ottlinger. I appear occasionally on uh, Blogging Heads Meaning, Meaning of Life, um, usually talking about more philosophical stuff. Today, talking about uh, more political stuff, but we'll find some philosophy quite relevant. Um, Kathy, care to introduce yourself? Hi, so I'm Kathy Young. I am a writer, journalist, uh, uh, occasional video podcaster at Org Digital. I'm a um, I'm also an associate editor at Org Digital. I've been at Reason Magazine for ages and ages, despite not really sort of being a doctrinaire libertarian. I'm not really a doctrinaire anything, <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, so I've been covering social issues and the culture wars forever and ever. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, th- that's basically me. I'm also the author of two books, one of which is a, is a personal uh, book about growing up in Moscow, where I was born when it was still the Soviet Union. And the other one uh, was published in 1999 about the kind of first round of the gender wars. It was called Ceasefire, Why Women and Men Must Join so Forces sorry. to Achieve True Equality. Bless you. And it's, uh, you know, it's uh, kind of frighteningly relevant. <laughs> so, yeah, alas. you know, it's, yeah, it's uh, kind of like everything is the same, but only more so. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so, yeah, so here we are. And it's great um, to be here. <laughs> Glad. Um, so, yeah, and let me just apologize um, right off for my hair, which is um, modeled on comedy legend Larry Fine. Uh, I, there's, there's nothing I can do with it at the moment. Um, so, we're all having a bad hair year, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we, I'm going to say what we're going to talk about, and I want to put a warning ahead of it that if you are the sort of person who immediately clicks away when I say this, please don't, because speaking for myself, I want to talk to you most of all. Um, so we're sort of going to talk about the woke wars here, and um the woke and the anti-woke, which are more and more becoming kind of identities, brands, uh, communities online. Um, And it's sort of, I I have the feeling I was pursuing this metaphor and something I, I was noodling with um, that it feels like world war one where it seems like neither side is advancing, but both sides are constantly bombarding. Oh, um, and that's a real shame. And I'm very curious. I, I very much want to find ways to actually kind of bring this uh, intractable conflict that has now been going on for at least 30 years to some kind of more satisfactory adjudication or um, right 
Well, yeah. I'd love to join you in the effort. <laughs> yes. Um, Hope springs eternal. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in that spirit, we decided to um, drill down on some woke stuff, but we're actually going to take on an anti-woker. So in spite of his being largely on our side. Um, and we don't want him there. <laughs> yes, right, and we'll get into why. But in spite of uh, sharing our rejection of wokeness, I'll put it that way, um, we find a lot to criticize in a certain person named James Lindsay. Um, I've been talking, so do you care to, can you give us like a, if some if someone hasn't heard of James Lindsay whatsoever? Right, right. Okay, he? so James Lindsay, uh, he kind of first came into uh, my site, uh, I think around like 2014, when the wars over wokeness and you know political correctness, identity politics, et cetera, were really just taking off. Uh, before that, he had been mostly visible as one of the sort of new atheists. Um, and uh, at that point, he kind of turned his... Um, his attention to social justice as an ersatz religion, essentially. And, uh, you know, initially I um, found a lot of his arguments, uh, you know, very cogent, um, agreed with most of his critique. Um, he, uh, he did a couple of things like fairly early on that kind of, uh, you know, set off certain alarm signals for me, like there was a um, uh, a kind of stunt that he did with a paper called the conceptual penis, mm -hmm. which was meant to be a sort of Alan Sokol style hoax, where uh, he and uh, his co-author Peter Bogosian, who is uh, I believe a philosophy professor at is it Portland State, right? I think, I so. think so. Yeah, um, it's apparently so Bogosian. Uh, oh, Bogosian. Okay. Yeah. I see. I've never actually heard it pronounced. So anyway, they, so the two of them, um, uh, wrote this kind of nonsense paper, which argued as, as if I remember correctly, that there's really no such thing as a penis. It's really just sort of a patriarchal construct, et cetera, et cetera. And they were going to try to get it published in a gender studies journal to show how kind of corrupt the whole and kind of insane the whole enterprise is. So I remember, I very vividly remember like getting a, a, a direct message on Twitter from James saying that, you know, he and Peter have this huge scoop, which is going to be like massive, and it's going to like really blow the lid off the gender studies industry, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, they managed to publish this paper that was a complete and sort of the obvious uh, piece of garbage and nonsense and so on, and like, 
th- that was like it, it just felt there was something very self-promoting about it because it was just like oh this thing is huge it's going to be like this huge huge story um well it turned out and, and there there were people who wrote about this who was sort of again like on his side in critiquing the uh sort of grievance studies as i think uh james and his co-authors have called it the grievance studies uh industry um who pointed out that uh, there they had actually failed to place the paper in any sort of like respectable or professional uh, journal of either gender studies or you know any related discipline, and they had ended up essentially sending it to a uh, like pay to publish. Mm-hmm. Uh, journal that was completely worthless, you know, lacked any yeah. respectability as far as citations. No, no peer review. Um, yeah, was, right, yeah. right. So, I mean, basically, it was sort of like the equivalent of putting something on, you know, Medium and then mm-hmm. saying, oh, you know, look at the garbage that can get published. <laughs> so, right, <yeah>. You know, <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, and it, 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 again, like the, the thing that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way was that they really oversold it. And mm-hmm. there was some, there just was something that wasn't quite, you know, kosher, so to speak, about yeah, I, the whole thing. I, I was, you know, plugged into philosophy world media right. at the time, mm-hmm. which really took news, took notice of this. And it sort of came in waves. It's like, hey, there was this hoax. And then it was like a little you right. know, like one hour later. And then it was like, oh, <laughs> uh, hey, yeah, it's right, not a real right. journal. And then it was sort of like, mm-hmm, yeah. why did you waste everyone's time? Yeah, basically, <laughs> basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he anyway. Yeah, he wasn't so much wrong as early because he did eventually have. Yeah, yeah. And eventually that was, I mean, the, 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 the next kind of step in this venture was much more successful. Uh, where, uh, you know, James, um, uh, Peter and a third co-author, uh, Helen Pluckrose, uh, who is a British um, scholar and sort of independent uh, researcher who also covers these sort of wokeness related culture wars, um, had a much better success rate with placing a bunch of, um, I forget, I think they managed to get altogether seven papers published. Mm-hmm. Um, this was something that got dubbed Sokol 2, as in, you know, Alan Sokol, and that, you know, well, 20, I, think the, yeah, the, I know people still remember the original Alan oh, Sokol story. Uh, probably. He, he hoaxed a journal in the, what, 70s? No, 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 no. This was much later. No, this is when I was already writing professionally about this stuff. I think this was like maybe like 91, 92. It oh, was really? a journal called Social Text. And um, I, I think he was a physicist, right? And And mm-hmm. he published a paper that essentially kind of argued that there's no objective reality and there are no objective rules of physics, like it's all determined by power relations and society, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually he unveiled it as a hoax. Anyway, so yeah, so this kind of got dubbed Sokol too. Well, it and- got dubbed, and particularly it got dubbed Sokol squared. Oh, right. Because, I'm sorry. Sokol yeah. squared. You're right. Yeah. Because right. it is, was like, that is true. Yeah, they, I am wrong. They, <laughs> they upped the game 
Yes, yes, right. Because Alan Sokol did one paper. Yeah, and this was Sokol Squared, right? Not Sokol. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's like two in superscript, not two in in regular script. So, um, anyhow, so yeah, so the one of the papers uh, that was written by Pluckrose under the pseudonym Helen Wilson actually managed to get some attention. I I think the Wall Street Journal sort of did a little write up. As in, you know, like, look at this ridiculous gender studies paper that just got published. It was purporting to be like an observational study of essentially dogs uh, humping in in a public park. Well, no, and it was it was the idea was there was something can, canine rape culture, right? Can, yes, yeah, right. right. Yeah, so then they were the being. Canine patriarchal in the way they were right and i think there was like one of the supposed observations was that like the the dog owners reacted much more positively when when Mm -hmm. their male dog tried to hump a female dog than if it was another male dog so it was Mm -hmm. also homophobic and like they were not like taking steps to ensure that the female dog was consenting you know hence rape culture i mean it was just this completely ridiculous study and like the um I, i think like even the observation of how the study was conducted was deliberately ludicrous because i think she actually claimed that she had like inspected the genitals of like a bunch of like dozens of dogs to make sure that they were male i mean it was just something completely bizarre and like you know uh, something that really should have been very obvious as a hoax um so you know that was definitely a success because that was uh, published in you know, a fairly mainstream, yeah, as these things go, you know, gender studies journal. People took it seriously. Uh, there were several other papers that were published. Uh, uh, and I, I think people have been questioning some of their claims. Like there was recently an article, because uh, one of their big claims was that they managed to publish something that was essentially a kind of rewrite of Mein Kampf, um, you know, where they just inserted social justice language instead of like German nationalism. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, And I think it was like, there was some text that actually like hinted at the origin, like it was something like our struggle to something or other, you know, (laughs) but I don't know. I mean, should the word struggle be automatically suspect? Who knows? Um, Anyhow, say, yeah, the, 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 the claim now is that, that the um, passages that they sort of inserted from Mein Kampf were really like completely innocuous and taken out of context. And it was really, uh, you know, from a chapter that is actually the least sort of they're obviously Nazi because it just talks about techniques of party organizing. So basically people are saying that, you know, like the fact that it came from Mein Kampf isn't really quite the indictment that it purports to be. I mean, like, it's kind of like, you know, if Hitler says physical fitness is good, you know, (laughs) does it automatically mean that if you publish a pro-physical fitness article, you know, you're sort of, you know, (laughs) cribbing from Hitler. So, yeah, so I don't know. So people have uh, have questioned the extent to which even this second study uh, you know, shows what they claim to show. And there have also been some questions raised about, you know, the ethics of essentially deceiving the, the editors and if they were doing, 
an academic study where the editors essentially like study subjects who were uh, kind of tripped into participating in a study without their consent, which, you know, which is a thorny question, but, um, you know, but I think it does have some validity because I remember talking about this to a friend of mine who is an academic who really hates all this, you know, sort of grievance study stuff as much as I do. But her first question was like, wait, they're going to be in trouble because they didn't yeah. follow sort of ethical procedures for doing a study. So, you know, I, I'm not an academic, so I'm not really quite as up on this as, uh, you know, other people are. But, you know, nonetheless, I do want to say that I still think the study had, uh, th- that was a genuine, you know, study that pointed, I think, to some real problems. And they didn't really, I think, oversell that one. So, you know, that I thought that was fairly solid. You know, I, I, I really did. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I sort of put aside my misgivings about James, you know, based on the conceptual penis thing. And I figured, okay, so he's a bit of a self-promoter. Like maybe he, you know, like blows his own horn a little bit too much. But, you know, if he's basically making, you know, some good arguments, you know, why not? So, you know, that was before he, he did start <laughs> well, going right. We'll get there. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, so yeah, um, so he's been basically a major critic of um uh you know, and he he's really like put to use the word critical race theory, which is something else that we're probably gonna get to. So he has been sort of on this big crusade against uh the you know the 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 rise and dominance of critical race theory and um uh you know and um it has gained a lot of visibility as uh, as a kind of anti woke activist and um yep, he was I think that brings, us, that brings us up to you know recent events <laughs> and um just as a note as somebody who was again uh plugged into philosophy world at the time he really well they the three of them really did succeed in killing uh, the foremost journal of um, feminist philosophy at the time. Uh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, Which one? Hypatia? Hypatia, yeah. I mean, it still exists, but I mean, it's, ah, wow. it's, its reputation is, you know, ah. in the gutter. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Were they the ones who published the dog paper? No, Was that them? no. it couldn't have been them. Um I don't because they also took some lumps over the transracialism paper Mm -hmm. by Rebecca Tobel, which is a whole other kind of which that was that was um, their reputation was injured from that and then followed by the ah see I didn't uh, I didn't realize that that had a which I actually I had mixed feelings about that because there's a lot of there is some feminist philosophy that I think is awful. Um, there's also some feminist philosophy, which is absolutely splendid. Right. Uh, like some of the best ethical thinking in the field now. Um, and, 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 you know, a lot of really great papers were published mm. in Hypatia. And it's not like they have nowhere. The International Journal of Women's Studies still exists. The, all right. the general journals still exist. Right. And they like having feminist content. So, but... It really, yeah, so it, it was a big deal. It really kind of influenced um, the landscape. Um, 
Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're caught up. And that brings us up to sort of his the following uh, act, as it were, was this book. Right. Which I should say, by the way, that I haven't read. So you're going to yes. be like the voice on this one. So I'm all, just going to shut up and listen. I've got some reviews. <laughs> all, all opinions belong to me. So send me your angry emails, not Kathy. Um, but uh, they kind of... So uh, the hoax suggested that something was wrong. This was supposed to be um, the full indictment or, you know, their their case against these sort of fields of study, which they were... Um, calling grievance studies and which involved uh, work in a lot of different departments uh, in a lot of different fields, but especially the kind of um, blank studies department. So uh, women's studies, Africana studies. Right. um, And also some areas of anthropology and so forth. Right. Um, I've also heard the term oppression studies, which I think used to be kind of, you know, the, the preferred uh, derogatory term. Yeah, which might be more apt, really, as a term. Yeah, yeah. Because um, grievance, it almost sounds like you're ascribing a motive, which... Mm, that's true. Yeah. Um, so this is not a terrible book. Um, it's the first book of its kind. And it's extremely ambitious. It's they really tried to give an overview of several different scholarly traditions, uh, chapter by chapter, and to try to trace their origins to fairly deep into the 20th century. So it's it's a big, complicated story they're trying to tell. And I mean, I think it it adds something, mm-hmm. but. Um, I also have real problems with it and it's going to fit into a larger pattern here of kind of problems with the way these guys um, use intellectual history and uh, the way they engage with sort of traditions of scholarship. Um, Now this book was co-written with Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. So inevitably in criticizing the book, I'm, you know, that's something that reflects on both of them. I'm eager to add that we're going to make our main subject is James Lindsay. And we're going to make some criticisms of him in a bit uh, that in no way reflect on Helen Pluckrose, who is the co-author of this book. So and so I'll try to be very clear about when mm-hmm. when they're both in the firing line and when uh Helen has nothing to do with it. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I do want to add, you know, I know Helen personally. We've, you know, met and met a few times at a couple of times at various events. I think she's a you know, we've interacted on Twitter a lot. She's a lovely person. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. And uh and you know, nothing that I say about James is uh you know not to reflect on Helen in any way shape or form. <laughs> so 
So yeah, and of of the three uh, the three musketeers behind the Sokol Squared hoax, she's by far my favorite, and um, she's really the only one of the three who seems to be genuinely sort of curious in an intellectual way about wokeness as a phenomenon. Oh, right. And even, in a sense, has a certain respect for it, in the sense that it's something substantial that needs to be sort of dealt with in a serious way, that it sort of deserves serious critique. Right. Um, so that's, that's a, and I, I very much think that it deserves that kind of spirit. I hate the kind of dismissive attitude that you get from sort of a lot of, especially a lot of right-wing criticism of of wokeness uh, and the woke phenomenon. Um, I said ages ago, by the way, just to give myself credit for this, I said this probably in 2016 uh, in a conversation with Dan Kaufman that wokeness is more coherent and more radical than a lot of people realize. Um, so, uh, yeah, so... I'll, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you yeah. credit for that. But I do have a big problem with this book, which is, if you look at this cover, it's the name of the book is Cynical Theories, but as you can see here, crossed out is critical theories. And um, if you're familiar with 20th century philosophy, you know, critical theory is something that was invented by sort of post-Marx Marxists who were grappling with the fact that um, the the revolution, which seemed imminent, to a lot of Marxists in the late 19th century, 50 years later had not emerged, and that um, what did emerge in uh, the dictatorships of Stalin and Hitler uh, right. was anything but what they had either wanted or predicted. Um, right. And indeed, America did not look like it was going to become communist anytime soon in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Um, Still doesn't, happy to say. (laughs) Um, um, So the Frankfurt School should be, one would think from the cover, would be rather important to this book. So imagine my surprise when I open to the first chapter and find that discussion of the Frankfurt School is basically relegated to a footnote. Um, that's the first footnote on the first chapter, where um, they basically dismiss it as irrelevant, saying that it's thought to uh, that you know this the theories that they're talking about are thought to derive from the Frankfurt school, but that's really largely an error. And that it's the sort of theories that they want to discuss and uh, critique came largely, they're largely of a postmodern variety that's largely distinct from the Frankfurt school. 
And to support this, they refer, and actually in um, in some of uh, James Lindsay's stuff, which he's written on his website, he refers to um, this this same uh, source. There is an entry for critical theory in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um, and I checked it out. I didn't read all of it, but um, it's really not very good. Uh, the, <laughs> which is, um, so the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, for people who don't know, is the kind of standard professional philosopher desk reference. It's actually, it's a beautiful, right. I mean, everyone in philosophy world loves it. Um, and it's just gives kind of a fairly dense kind of aimed at graduate students and professional philosophers, uh, but relatively kind of synoptic brief overviews on all kinds of topics, all, all the major historical figures, Right. Are, have a page and, you know, basic philosophical topics. Uh, some philosophical, important philosophical works all have pages. And it's. Right. Yeah, I've read some entries. It's, it's, uh, it's quite good. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really a great resource. Yeah. This is one of the rare ones that I did not like. This is a rare <laughs> entry that I did not like. Um, the free speech one, by the way, is awful. Um, but that's uh, oh, who wrote that, it? Uh, I don't remember, but um, okay, mm-hmm. it, it takes well, that's right. a, just an aside. <laughs> okay, that's a, um, right, so that's the tangent. The, the, the entry on critical theories in, in the SCP was clearly written by a uh, Habermasian. Okay. Um, so Jurgen Habermas took over the literal Frankfurt school and became kind of um, a leader. He was a leader of uh, well European political philosophy, but he had, he had been kind of more a traditional um, critical theorist in the modern, in the mold of the kind of original generation of Horkheimer and Adorno and uh, Marcuse, but he, ended up having a kind of change of heart and change of mind at a point in his career and went on and uh, and started engaging with Anglophone philosophy and ended up a lot closer to a more traditional liberal um, approach, which was very close to what Marxists in the Frankfurt School were originally critiquing. So Habermas is um, often to people who are still uh, uh, committed to Marxism, he's often kind of viewed as the betrayer of the the Frankfurt School, that he kind of um, took it away from its radical roots. I think. And... um, The the the, art, the SCP article is not good in the way that it treats 
um, Habermas is completing the work of the Frankfurt School and that the Frankfurt School sort of has this lack in a way to articulate their critique and then Habermas provides it in um, his eventual philosophy. And I have nothing, I have no problem with that view, um, but it's it's a really kind of slanted way to view um, Adorno and Horkheimer, who never conceived of themselves as sort of stepping stones on the way to Jürgen Habermas, who they, of course, never knew about. Right. Um, so, and it, it does not give you any sense that there's a real discontinuity between the original generation oh, of I the see. Frankfurt School mm-hmm. and between uh, Habermas. So um, it, it's kind of, and the trouble is these guys um, just kind of, their engagement with critical theory seems to end there. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so they comment on the fact that um, uh, uh, that they contest that uh, their critical theory, the critical theory they want to criticize is not descended from the Frankfurt School. They said, in fact, the members of the Frankfurt School, especially Jürgen Habermas, were largely critical of postmodernism. I would have said uh, the only member of the Frankfurt School <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> who's extremely critical of uh, mm-hmm. yeah. of postmodernism would be Jürgen Habermas, and uh-huh. um, I would consider. Horkheimer and Adorno as postmodern. I could imagine yeah. that being. I, I could see that being contested. Yeah. I don't know. Right, right. I don't know what the literature around these figures is like, or whether that's something that's debated in the literature. Um, but I, I, I looked at their SCP articles, just the ones for Horkheimer and Adorno, and it looks like they treat them mm-hmm. as postmodern. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean. Like I said, this is a very ambitious book, and uh, Lindsay is a mathematician. And right. Helen, I believe, was a medievalist. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I get that they don't. They're they have a lot of catching up to do right. on you know philosophy and you know this kind of heavily continental philosophy is not something mm-hmm. you yeah. uh, find a lot in the English speaking worlds and it's very obscure kind of in groupy stuff. So I'm willing to cut them not only some slack, but quite a bit of slack, but then guys, look, if it's on the cover of your book, <laughs> yeah, you know, you should really look into it. And it really seems like they didn't look into it really terribly closely at all. Yeah. Well, Um, I mean, I'm certainly willing to cut them some slack in terms of, like, you know, I don't know anything about critical mm -hmm. theory, but, you know, I'm not setting out to write books about it. Right. Yeah. And by the way, uh, it's 
not strictly relevant, but I kind of hate Horkheimer and Adorno and that whole Mm -hmm. tradition. And I think a lot of it's just very bad philosophy. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm totally up for a book taking that all down. I know, um, what's his name? The old British stick in the mud who died recently. Hobsbawm? No, not Hobbes. No, 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 no. No, uh, no uh, other side of the spectrum. Um, Scruton. Oh, Scruton. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, he wrote a book like that. And oh, I don't okay. know. Opin- opinions are varied, but um, I, have, I haven't read that book. But, you know, I'm, I'm up for the exercise. But you, you do, it, no, no matter how bad you think a philosophy is, you do just kind of have to get right. Mm-hmm. their own view and situate them in proper historical context. And I don't see that here. Um, okay. uh, yeah. So well, again, I can't really say anything about the book. I haven't read it. You know, I, I have read some reviews, which I thought were interesting. I mean, there, uh, I, I, do, do you want to get to the, to the next part where they talk about critical? Cause, the, cause I, as I understand it, like they're, their analysis focuses on the sort of modern version of critical theory, which is essentially like originating with critical race theory, which doesn't really have a whole lot to do with critical with the Frankfurt School model. It's, you know, it, it's basically a, um, you know, very kind of totalistic race-based analysis of modern American and maybe modern Western society in general. And it's also in its kind of broader application uh, beyond race. It's also just, I mean, my, my understanding is that it's a kind of approach that views all of society, like all social interactions in terms of power dynamics and, you know, systems of oppression. And uh, that's, so that's mainly, I think, what they're taking on, right? Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, uh, so a lot of critical race theory, um, such as my understanding, um, I haven't, I confessed to not having read as much as the authors, okay. but, you know, I'm aware, right. I'm aware of some things. Um. A lot of it looks to Fanot. Um, right. Who, and Fanot's, uh, you know, from Martinique, so he's not um, right. part of the Frankfurt School in the literal sense, but he's very much, he's in a similar ideological kind of uh, milieu, or he, he's working, he's also heavily indebted to Marx. Um, right, right. He's also uh, heavily indebted to Freud, as some of the, a lot of the Frankfurt schoolers were. Oh. And he's generally making the same turn from kind of economics to culture right. that, the, that the Frankfurt School are generally making. And so there's a lot of, I think actually that they're right about a lot um, that in this sort of post-Marx moment, uh, partly because of the Frankfurt School, partly because of um, uh, Foucault. Right. 
and and other continental thinkers like that um the sort of um obsession with culture and that uh Marcus well, an was, obsession with identity also like with also that, racial yeah. sexual you know gender mm-hmm. identity you know disability like basically like physical you know identity based on in some sense of on physical characteristics right yeah, i mean I, not- I think Foucault was the one who first started that awful like vogue of talking about bodies like you know black bodies and you know the the, the body i mean i think that was Foucault's thing right D- didn't doesn't that come from Foucault like the whole um, like, body talk he was like, certainly concerned queer bodies, bodies you know blah 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 like in uh, I think I, that's, I, that's his kind of tick, like referring to people as bodies. You know, like I, so, I'm not yeah, sure, but I would way. bet <laughs> I would I would bet that Fanoa is too. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I'm not oh, quite okay. sure. Um, okay, I, yeah, yeah, but there's, um, yeah. So I I mean I think they're right. I mean I think they're clearly right that that kind of set of thinkers. Um, was really foundational to a lot of the academics we see in America now um, who are really kind of the proximate cause of this kind of woke thinking, this kind of woke cultural turn, uh, partly because they educate the journalists who then go out and write oh, yeah. for yeah. A, a lot of um, these outlets. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. So I think that's all true. Um, but they're, the the way they just kind of zero in on postmodernism, uh, I think is pretty unhelpful. Right, it's right. definitely, it's a big part of the story. But um, there's a real deafness to the larger kind of intellectual context of um, the 20th century and the kind of intellectual trends that were Mm -hmm. intellectual and cultural trends that were kind of uh, going on and why they were taking shape. The sort of skepticism about morality, the kind of the stuff that Right. Took place around books like Hopi Ethics and the sort of um, uh, loss of faith in right and wrong is another big part of the story. Another big part of the story should be the school of suspicion, um, which is a sort of okay. uh, a tradition which, a very broad tradition, really a sort of set of traditions which emphasizes mm-hmm. not taking on arguments directly, but critiquing the person behind it and sort of exposing it ah, without having right, to right. directly critique okay. it. Which, right, uh, right. Yep. And the, you know, the famous, Ricoeur's famous phrase is uh, Mar- uh, Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche were the founders of the school of suspicion. Nietzsche has some think, sort right. of some sort of affinities with postmodernism, I would argue not much. Okay. But the yeah. other two mm-hmm. the other two are just yeah. completely modern. 
Um, there's nothing postmodern yeah. about yeah. Freud or Marx. Right. Or Marx, no. my God. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So they, their emphasis on postmodernism is way too heavy. Um, I think that's very clear. Right. Yeah, you know, I kind of feel like in general, like I think Jordan Peterson kind of does the same thing where people yep, just absolutely. sort of use the word postmodernism as this kind of generalized like slam at you know something that they like everything everything that I think is bad as postmodernism, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah. And like, most... you know, they use it as a synonym for like moral relativism, yeah. like as a symbol as a, a kind of shorthand for like uh, identity obsessions and the sort of hierarchy of oppression. So like it's all lumped together under the label postmodernism, which you know a lot of it doesn't really it doesn't really fit so yeah and a lot of the woke people including uh, getting to what you were kind of pointing out a while back a lot of the critical race people don't take themselves to be postmodern a lot of them aren't too indebted to postmodernists and much less are the kind of woke journalists the sort of oh yeah no the, you know adam serwer rebecca traster no no have never read no. a page of Derrida, um, <laughs> you know. Um, so the the yes, so I the sort of postmodernism on the brain is uh, it's not so much that postmodern everywhere is postmodernism is everywhere so much as that's kind of what they happen to read <laughs> and then <laughs> they kind of projected yeah. everywhere. But again, not mm-hmm. that postmodernism right. isn't important or influential. It's a mm-hmm. part of it's a big part of the story. Um, but it's really only part of the story. It's a shame it kind of became the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, would everybody, this debate is not going away. So will mm-hmm. everybody stop writing their books in like a year or six months or, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, yeah. unfortunately, I promise you this is going to be here in five years. So, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. just state your books, people, you know. Um, okay. Can I quickly do something else? Sure. Okay. Now, we've reached the point in the conversation where we're waving goodbye to Helen Pluckrose, and everything we have to say from here on in is going to be reflecting on James Lindsay and James Lindsay alone. So I'm going to refer to some things that he's written on Twitter and some things that he's written. He has a website now called New Discourses. New Discourses, yeah, yeah. Where he writes these endless posts like tens and tens mm-hmm. of thousands of words right all these sections and they just seem to cover every topic and it's like reading hegel um <laughs> it's like um there's this and and so i'm going to refer to some things he says there and um He's sort of developed his theory of wokeness, I guess you would say there. An interesting mm-hmm. thing is that he does seem to have a pre- I've sort of found contradictory statements on his website, mm-hmm. but um, he does seem to have realized that the Frankfurt School is more important than he took it to be when he was uh, writing uh, 
when he was writing cynical theories. Um, but I want to read this statement. This is something he tweeted, but it's also something that he develops on a couple voluminous posts on new discourses. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wokeness is largely a Hegelian dialectical and state faith that has been grafted onto lapsed Calvinism, thus having many parallels to that tradition, including an underlying Augustinian construct and Puritans in the full act of their own humiliation. I'm sorry, (laughs) but I'm going to read that again. Wokeness is largely a Hegelian dialectical and state faith that has been grafted onto lapsed Calvinism, thus having many parallels to that tradition, including an underlying Augustinian construct and Puritans in the full act of their own humiliation. Now that, to the extent that it means anything, is something that he develops a little more mm-hmm. on some post, and I, okay, I, I, I wanted to say that I'd read several posts in full, but it turns out I physically cannot. <laughs> so I, I tried to read everything he wrote about right. Calvinism, and I read a lot of what he said about wokeness and its relation to religion. So I've tried right. to give this guy a fair shake. Um. When you see someone drawing a straight line like that through Augustine, so late antiquity, mm-hmm. Calvin, so mm-hmm. early modernity, right. Hegel, full romanticism, um, through people who are not intellectuals, but are a lay movement, a, or, uh, well, I know, a social movement, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Uh, not all intellectuals of the Puritans, and then to the present day. So there's this long straight line going from uh, late antique hippo to Brooklyn today. And it runs through like several of the greatest figures in Mm. Western intellectual thought. Yeah. That's a time. I also wonder, by the way, is he thinking of the, the actual Puritans or is he thinking of the sort of you know, the popular caricature of the Puritans. Well, tell you what, Kathy, because he's a thorough guy. He read Puritans, a very brief introduction from Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And he quotes liberally from that, which I I won't make you suffer through that. Okay. Um, Oh, I just happen to have uh, Patrick Collinson's Godly People. This is one oh, of the okay. real important books on Puritanism. And ah, okay. I would bet that James Lindy does not own it. Okay. All um, right. That sounds but, nice. But, um, yeah, because I do know, for instance, that like a lot of the things that people believe, like, you know, the Puritans didn't believe in sexual pleasure, like that was completely wrong. Yeah. Well, the Puritans, Puritan is like neoliberal. It's, right, right. it's a name that refers to a lot of cultural and intellectual trends that aren't right. really a reified thing in any rich sense, but they just kind of, so everyone who is described as a Puritan 
does not really have much in common, which right. is not to say nothing in common. Um, some historians have argued um, another book he hasn't read. Um, uh, there's um, there there were historians who argued that Puritan Puritan is not a cohesive enough concept to be legitimate mm. legitimate historiographical okay. construct. Most do not. Uh, most think that the godly, as which is the title of Collinson's book, were in some sense a group. You hmm. know, I'll have to go that. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, but the 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 problem here is that sentence and the development that he gives it on his website gets so much wrong and it's so indicative and it it's the same problem I had with cynical theories except on steroids mm -hmm. now of this is what happens when you get, engage with intellectual history only to mine it for something you disagree with mm -hmm. yeah um so yeah okay, I'll try to do this quickly Augustine is where he starts that era Okay, he's clearly thinking of the Augustine of the Confessions. Okay. Um, I doubt he's thinking much of the Augustine of the City of God. Oh, yeah, right. Um, and how Augustine changed over his career. Um, because there's the general consensus is that the Augustine of the Confessions is a very different man than the Augustine of City hmm. of God. Now, Augustine does talk a lot about his sins in the Confessions. Oh, yeah. First of all, here's another thing that, I, that our friend doesn't know, is confession does not just mean confession of sin or... Right, right. So in, in kind of contemporary English, you can't confess something that's not compromising in some way. Uh -huh, you know, right, it's right. like, I confess I got an A in my math test. You know, that's not quite grammatical. That's not standard idiom. But in older mm -hmm. sense, including older English sense, um, confession can mean basically profesh. Um, so, yeah, and it can also mean, I think, just a sort of like very personal statement of, mm -hmm. you know, one's life. I mean, well, which I think even if you go back to uh, the 19th century, there was a, a once very influential French book by Alfred de Musset, uh, Confessions of a Child of the Century, which was mm -hmm. sort of meant to be this book kind of capturing the zeitgeist of the sort of the post-romanticism kind of lost cells. Mm -hmm. And it's not like it's not confession in the sense that he is confessing to you know, anything bad, it's yeah. sort of like, this is my soul laid bare, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, yeah. um, the King James uses confess in the sense of profess in right. um, certain passages. So, yeah. So even, yeah, in, um, in older forms uh, of English, and I'm, I mean, older, but right. recent enough to be present. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the word had that meaning. So the confessions is a confession of faith and knowledge as much as sin. And also um, the, 
when Augustine talks about his sins, he's partly just interested in them intellectually. Mm, right. Um, the famous pairs, which is a beautiful passage in the Confessions. He's not telling that so to sort of cleanse his soul and humiliate himself by mm-hmm. laying him his terrible crime of having stolen some pears as a boy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's not the point of the exercise. The point is just to, um, that he's interested in why he did something wrong and he doesn't know why he did. Mm. And, so it's introspection basically. Right. Yeah. Or, well, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. well, it's really, it's an ethical philosophy. Mm, it's okay. he's sort of, he thinks that he, he it, it feels to him like he did something wrong just to do something wrong. Ah, uh-huh, and right, from right. his Christian Platonist point of view, that should be impossible. Mm. Um, mm. So then he has this sort of puzzle and he has to kind of try to solve it. And what he comes up with is he, he did it to do something friendly with the other boys. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, so there was something good that motivated him. Mm. Um, so you know, it's it, been a, I actually have yeah. read it, but it's really been a very long time. So. But my point is, you know, a, yeah, yeah. a lot of undergraduates, um, I can remember having this conversation around the dining hall table when I was in college mm. about people mm-hmm. who are reading all this stuff into Augustine that, you know, because it was this, this sort of evangelical and puritan kind of humiliation confession that mm. we all got in high school and right, Hawthorne right. and uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff they they think that's what augustine's doing but it's really not that and he says repeatedly i'm not worried about it mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's you know that's not his taste and also um predestination's a big part of the line he's drawing through Calvin to um, Puritan to woke. It's not clear. There's actually, the literature's apparently changed on this, but it's not clear that the Augustine of of the Confessions is already committed to predestination. Um, A traditional view has thought that he wasn't until City of God, but uh, uh, there's some argument about that, but whatever. But I'm trying to model real engagement versus sort of fake, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. let's enlist Augustine into the, our anti-cause. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Calvin, in, you know, he talks about predestination as kind of leading to this humility, you know, something that would dispose you towards liking this kind of humiliating confession kind of mm-hmm. Um, he makes a connection between the doctrine and the sort of religious practice of sort of abasing oneself and confessing oneself and seeing oneself and presenting oneself in public as wretched, mm-hmm. um, right. which is popular among the woke um, and was popular among the Puritans. Here's the thing. Um, for all of the reformers, the great reformers, but especially for most dramatically in the life of Luther, predestination was a way out of that kind of thinking. Mm. They thought Catholicism was neurotic because you had to (laughs) think through all of your sins and Mm -hmm. um, 
go to confession and make sure that you confessed all of them. And then what if you forgot something? What if you, what if you weren't quite honest in your confession? And then what if you've sinned since the last confession? And this right. drove, um, Luther nuts when he was uh, still a monk. But then <laughs> if you believe in predestination and redemption through faith, don't have to worry about any of that. So put mm, your, right. put your faith in God and, Go through your day. Uh, was it Luther or Calvin who said sin boldly? Um, you know, don't I be. Think it was, I think it was Luther. I think, was it... but I'm not. Yeah. I'm... Um, yeah. You know, in the sort of, there was the Puritan Reformation, or the, excuse me, the Protestant Reformation did bring out this sort of wave of anti-intellectual social movements that really um, were sort of more vulgar and did this sort of humiliating self-abasement thing. Luther and especially Calvin were worried by that development mm-hmm. um, um, okay. and, and were at, towards the end of their life concerned to oppose it and to stand up for learning and for reason in faith and not to make it an all emotional thing. Um, so again, so, and then I'm not even going to touch Hegel because I I just have no sense that he has even the vaguest conception of anything (laughs) Hegel thought. Um, and he's never engaged with Hegel despite he's on Twitter. It's on his lips all the time, but he's not demonstrated any substantial, uh, ability to, um, engage with Hegel. So right. um, that just, it's, there's so much complexity that just gets leveled. Right. And uh, just as a final parting shot, he refers to Kant as beginning the counter enlightenment. Oh yeah. Right. Absolutely ridiculous. There's this, it's, that's just, uh, and then he links to an unscholarly book on a tiny libertarian imprint. Um, I was gonna, I, I was gonna say yeah. that sounds like the Ayn Rand uh, critique, Apparently. Uh, if you can call it that, because she <laughs> had a major sort of hate on for, for Kant, and uh, you know, like, and there are. The, I mean, I, I think people have written that you know she essentially like completely misunderstood what he was arguing and like where she claimed that he was advocating sort of subjectivist ethics or you know he believed that you cannot sort of you know comprehend reality through a reason that's really not what Kant was saying so you know he wasn't saying that reason is impotent you know to say like everything that Kant is as thoroughly rationalist as right, about yeah, any Enlightenment yeah. philosopher, more so than Hume or Smith right. or who were moral sentimentalists. And he, on the sort of all the classic um, markers of the Enlightenment, hostility to uh, emotion or suspicion of emotion, um, individualism, uh, right. rationalism. Um, Kant is like a 10 out of 10 on all of them. <laughs> yeah. And, and right. at a, at a time when the in, other enlightenment things, thinkers like, um, 
uh, Hutchison and um, Pufendorf and other sort of, well, uh, Pufendorf was earlier, but other figures were kind of moving away and trying to, uh, Joseph Butler, um, bring in, Mm -hmm. affirm what was true in Aristotle and the scholastic Uh uh tradition they had broken away from. And combine that with what they felt were the new insights of Hobbes and Locke and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. other yeah. people. But Kant not participating in that oh, modification. Yeah. He's, okay. you know, mm-hmm. he's firmly, he's the apotheosis of the Enlightenment. He's both the best Enlightenment right, philosopher right. and the mm-hmm. most Enlightenment-y philosopher. And he's <laughs> yeah. the one who basically coined, he didn't quite coin the phrase Enlightenment that came from the French, right. but mm-hmm. he yeah. gave yeah. the classic statement of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what is the meaning of enlightenment? It's the classic statement of the enlightenment ethos. So, mm. yeah. Um, so I think I think Lindsay may be cribbing from Ayn Rand for all I know because yeah, it's right. like because Ayn Rand um, had a had an essay that she wrote in, I think it was around the time of Woodstock. Like she had this essay claiming that like Kant was the forefather of the hippies or something like that. You know, like, Jesus, no, so. No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, I, I looked at this. I, I looked at this little tiny imprint. Yeah. Um, What's the imprint? I'm just curious. I can't remember. It has some goofy name. It's um, not like the Ayn Rand Institute, is it? No, no, okay. no. But they, they did publish one of the other books was some Randian objectivism. Okay. Thing. I wasn't aware that Rand had it out for Kant. Oh yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because like there there are some people who like even even people who do sort of take Rand like fairly seriously as a thinker. And you know, I like I personally think she had some interesting ideas. I think she was a very kind of, you know, uh disorganized, you know, thinker with delusions of grandeur, but you know, but she I think she had some interesting insights on some things, but like even like people who sort of consider themselves randy and like some of them will basically say yeah like she just totally didn't get Kant at all <laughs> and you know like she was just completely off base in in her critique so yeah so he may be boring from that but we should probably be moving on to like yeah. the other side um, of james Lindsay, which yeah. is a social media presence and because right. that's and uh, i'm very happy to say you will be taking that over but okay. Just, yeah. Just, yeah. Just yeah. I do want to say, you know, before we move on to that, yeah, I mm-hmm. want to say that in terms of like critiques of uh, wokeness, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I've seen, uh, I think I've seen a couple of people say that like they're very, um, and these are people who are really not like pro wokeness at all, mm-hmm. yet who say that they are very leery of the whole, you know, wokeness is a religion uh, construct. Yeah. And partly they're leery because they don't like the sort of, you know, new atheist, like everything I don't like is a religion thing. Um, Partly because they just think it's really simplistic. And I mean, you know, there's a sense in which you could argue that every strongly held belief system is a religion, right? I mean, that's... uh, you know, I mean, certainly, you know, communism was a substitute religion for some people. Mm-hmm. I, 
you know, I once heard a woman that I was in a discussion with on, on Canadian television say that feminism is her religion. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think that any um, any belief, I mean, you know, anti-wokeism can probably be a religion. I mean, you know, reason can be a religion. You know, mm-hmm. they tried to do mm-hmm. that during the French Revolution. You know, mm-hmm. so that's... Uh, or, or Ayn Rand. Uh, yeah, they, they yeah. yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so I mean, if we're going to slap the, the label of religion on any, you know, strongly or dogmatically held belief system, then, you know, it's basically what's the point even because everything and, is a religion. Yeah. And there's the thing, what does it add? Like, okay, it's a religion. Do we understand it better now? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I think that there are some interesting things to say about, for instance, the uh, kind of the penitence, uh, you know, impulse and the, the uh, you know, the, the, the confession of sins. Um, but, yeah. you know, I, I, again, I, I think it's, it can be really simplistic. And Let me say, I don't think that Lindsay is necessarily wrong about there being a connection right. between Calvinism mm-hmm. and wokeism, but that's not a reason to go and... <laughs> just go leveling Western history. So James Lindsay, he thinks it's important to talk about great thinkers. Um, he doesn't seem to do a very good job of it. Right. Um, so Yeah. Uh, uh, and also like in terms of the, the one thing that I have seen recently that really kind of has been driving me nuts. And this is definitely, you know, James Lindsay's doing is that people have been like anti-woke people have taken to using uh, the, the 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 word CRT, you know, like critical uh-huh, race theory, uh-huh, yeah. as the sort of general synonym for wokeness uh, or for you know radical social justice. And I mean, or I some of them, like... some of them do that with um, intersectional, like your um, your colleague here. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, Rob. Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say. Okay. Well, I will say one thing. I will say one thing, which is that, you know, we are dealing with what I think is a, you know, cohesive ideology Mm -hmm. that has a huge influence in society right now. And that has been sort of, you know, taking over in a kind of creeping fashion, you know, more and more sectors of, you know, intellectual life and so on. I mean, you know, it like, Ten years ago, it was present primarily in academia. Today, it's like, you know, it's taken over much of the sort of center-left media. It's, you know, present in corporations and so on and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there is this, you know, ideology, which doesn't have a name, you know. And I think that kind of, that drives people nuts because it's really, I mean. It's, they won't like, pick a damn name. It, like even defining it is like trying to nail jello to the wall because like every and of course partly i think this is i don't mean that it's a conspiracy but there is a kind of deliberate slipperiness there because it's like every time that you tr- come up with some kind of definition like people will start 
pounding on why it's wrong. Like, oh, political correctness? Well, you know, there's a million reasons. Cancel culture, haha, you know, this is ridiculous. Like, what cancel culture? You know, and what about the the cancel culture on the right? So on and so forth. And, you know, Wesley Yang has come up with this term successor ideology, which, you know, nobody except him really knows what it means. And I think, I mean, he means that it's like the ideology that has succeeded centrist liberalism as the dominant ideology of like the educated uh kind of you know the educated classes and uh, yeah but i mean what does it even mean like uh, like i i've seen people try to use like successor ideology and everybody else goes what you know like what's that (laughs) so i mean i understand the frustration that drives people to start using the sort of crt label uh but i mean i just think it's a really bad label because it's you know, first of all, because again, and I think this is one of my concerns about, and I think our joint concerns about, you know, what's happening in the sort of anti-woke ranks, it's this tendency toward um, cliquishness, because, you know, it's kind of, in, in that sense, it's kind of like woke people using terms like uh What's, what is it? How do you pronounce that? Latinx? Latinx? <laughs> Latinx. I mean, you know, yeah. Latinx, right. Or Latinx. Uh, yeah, yeah. Latinx, right. Or it's kind of like they use words like, you know, decentering and, you yeah. know, whatnot. And it's like there's this in uh, inside baseball sort of jargon, which... Uh, or do you, you know, know what, kind of, do you know what sea lion means? Sea lion, yes, I do. I mean, remember, I wrote about Gamergate. Of course, I know. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I know what it means. But, yeah, but it's kind of like there's this sort of in-group jargon that marks you as one of the, you know, one of the uh, tribe, so to speak, right? right? And I think that's what... Yeah, and I think that's what, you know, that's what CRT has become. I mean, I see people use the word CRT and like immediately my, you know, antenna kind of go up and I'm like, oh, well, that's probably a James Lindsay fan. And, you know, nine times out of 10, it turns out that, uh, you know, that's true. But also it doesn't really accurately describe, I think, what this ideology is because, I mean, for one thing, a lot of it doesn't have anything to do with race. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like one of the hottest you know, areas right now is transgender issues. I mean, that's like where a lot of the action is. And uh, in, I mean, in terms of like what's happening in terms of like intellectually and, uh, you know, where the discourse is at. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's, uh, and I totally blame Lindsay for that. And yeah. I think, uh, you know, Chris Rufo, who is one of those mm-hmm. pals, has God. actually said that like they're deliberately using the strategy of slapping the 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 label of CRT on like everything that uh, you know like all these weird cultural phenomena that people dislike like right. you know yeah. all this talk about systems of oppression and whatnot and the, like the, they are deliberately pushing this um kind of meme of uh critical race theory as the enemy and i mean you know anytime that you engage in those sort of shenanigans 
uh, you're reducing discourse to something really crude and polarized and, you know, label uh, slinging. <laughs> and, and people see what you're doing. Yeah, of course. They're, of they're course. not going to, you're not going to fool them into no. uh, hating something by calling it CRT. Or, no, you know. no, no. Well, I mean, you're probably going to, you know, you're going to get them to hate it if they're if they already hate it. And then they're mm-hmm. going to uh, yeah. and now they can put a name to what they hate, you know, but you're yeah. not going to like someone who, who isn't already against this. But that's no. exactly like wokeism is they have their own little yeah. hyper radical yeah. uh, in group yeah. and then they are not persuasive to the vast majority. No, yeah. no, no. And I think that's, uh, that's, you know, that's part of the problem. And of course, the other thing is that, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, well, first of all, okay, first of all, Lindsay's Twitter presence, and, and we should also probably mention that he co-wrote this book called How to Have Impossible Conversations, right, which is especially ironic, yeah. where he was supposedly, like, recommending, uh you know, how to talk to people across ideological lines, like how to find areas of agreement, et cetera, et cetera. And in the meantime, you know, he's there on Twitter, you know, for lack of a better word, being a complete asshole. You know, he's uh, like at a certain point, and I'm, you know, I haven't like at a certain point, I actually started muting him at times because he just got so annoying. So I haven't like followed all of his shenanigans, but he started like he developed this tick of using, you know, your mother uh, insults (laughs) in response to you know, and not just people who were trolling him, like sometimes people who were trying to make like reasonable points responding to something he said. And like, and it just got to the level of where like where, where somebody says, would say something like, well, you know, I'm not sure I like. Uh, like what you're doing right now and he go he'll go like yeah well your mother loved it it's like what are you doing you know this is just completely nuts (laughs) like who is this supposed to win over except like i don't know like 15 year old kids who find this i don't know know. uh so it's just very bizarre and uh you know he started getting to the point where like he he was increasingly just a jerk to to, to anyone who uh, disagreed with him and like there there were moments where like i wrote um i'm trying to remember when this was i think this was um like uh, in august of last year maybe there was this ridiculous kerfuffle about two plus two equals five do you remember that yes uh, i do i didn't where... read your piece i did i found that whole thing okay, so, so basically so he posted a series of memes uh sort of ridiculing like you know these graphics ridiculing wokeness and one of them was something like you know two plus two equals four is uh is like you know a relic of patriarchal of white masculinity or something so you know he was sort of making fun of the this uh, you know supposed you know woke math and he actually was referencing something that really was going on which is uh there were some 
um, they're like there's a, a curriculum in Seattle, I think, where they were trying to incorporate social justice into math. And then there were these extremely misguided materials suggesting that, uh, you know, the inviting kids to analyze how, you know, power and oppression operate in the math classroom. And one of them was something like, you know, who decides what the right answer is. And it's just completely, completely ridiculous. I think really very pernicious. And there really was this little sort of subculture of uh, super woke sort of math people trying to argue that somehow that two plus two equals four is, is this Western construct, oh, which doesn't necessarily apply in all cultures. Right. That's, and, that's the big problem. Yeah. And so Lindsay was kind of ridiculing them. And then, you know, and I think Lindsay was basically right. You know, like, and I, I wrote about it. And I said, yeah, like he's basically correct, except that he kind of kneecapped himself by being a complete ass toward this guy named Kareem Carr. And I'm, you know, I'm not a great fan of what Kareem was doing because Kareem mm -hmm. isn't like Kareem is, is I think a mathematician and, uh, um, I think he's working on a PhD in biostatistics at Harvard. Uh, and he's kind of like, he's not a super woke guy, but he's also kind of on that side of the culture wars. And I think he had previously clashed with Lindsay over affirmative action or something. So he was taking shots at Lindsay and he started coming up with all these you know, very convoluted examples of how, oh, well, here are ways in which, you know, two plus two may not equal four. And none of them really made any sense if you, like, you know, sort of analyze them because it was always stuff like, you know, substituting, like, yeah, like, sure, if you take like different units and you sort of exchange, you, you, you change the units in mid formula, mm -hmm. then of course it doesn't equal four. Like, you know, I mean, it's kind of like saying that, well, you know, like if, if you take two, um, hundred dollar bills and, you know, two ten dollar bills, uh, then, you know, two plus two equals, uh, 220. Well, you right, know, that's yeah. ridiculous because you're, you know, you're sort of arbitrarily juggling the units that you're counting. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you can get any number you want. So, you know, so it was, it, it didn't say anything at all about the validity of math. It didn't have anything mm -hmm. to do with, you know, math being a, uh, you know, social construct. It was really just, you know, and I ran this by a mathematician I know, and he basically said, yeah, it's just word games, really. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and it can be sort of cute. Like you can do this to do riddles, you know, you can do this as sort of, you know, like, uh, you can do it as a test of mental alertness. Like how quickly can you think? And you know, adapt to different, you know, to to shifting units, but it doesn't again, like it doesn't really have anything to do with math. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, I, I think Lindsay was right in that he was pointing out that you know all of this was being used to kind of legitimize. Uh, th this really, I think, pernicious idea that, uh, that, you know, math is essentially subjective. And uh, th not only that, but math is, 
uh, some sort of like the, it, the the math we know is somehow the product of you know white European thinking, which mm-hmm. you know which is ridiculous because you know like if you look at ancient Hindu and Chinese math, you know you're gonna find that is basically a lot of the same formulas because you know because it is an objective reality mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that you know if you take two oranges and you know, two mm-hmm. more oranges, you're always going to get four oranges. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I was kind of lonely on his side, but the, the thing is that he, he was he was so incredibly abusive to Kareem Carr that, you know, like he, he squandered any sympathy that uh, that he rightly should have had. And not only that, but I think at one point there was another, there was a woman whom he actually reported to her employer when he felt that she was being uh being somehow like abusive to him like i I, I mean i think she did sort of suggest yeah like i i think she did suggest that he was a racist or something so i mean she was kind of being a jerk but then he actually tagged in like i think she was an employee of uh, either a college or some, you know, health department mm-hmm. somewhere. She was a doctor, and he basically tagged them in and was like, "Well, you know, do you do you like the way your employees behave online by, you know, randomly attacking people as racist for having an opinion she doesn't like?" I mean, that's completely. I mean, that's like that's not that different from what the woke do. Like, oh, like, do you know that your employee is harassing women and minorities online you know, by disagreeing with them? So he. Was really doing the same thing and uh you know so he he ended up like totally losing the moral high ground in a situation in which he should have had it you know by rights because he was on the right side of the argument and i was like at that point i was i was just getting to the point where like you know i'm really washing my hands of you know of uh, uh, of jim Lindsay because you know like he's not really an ally you want to have and that was when uh the next thing that happened was that he got on the trump train (laughs) oh no why did he get on the trump train it was because um you know he was he, he was writing about of course critical race theory and he was writing about you know, CRT-based uh, diversity and inclusion training, which, again, you know, he has a totally legitimate point. Like, uh, there is a lot of really, really terrible, you know, diversity training going on. It's been going on, by the way, since, like, probably the late 1990s, because I remember there were, I mean, it's obviously gotten more widespread, but there was actually, there was a very good piece that, um, uh, I don't know if you're aware of Alan Kors, uh, no. He's a historian. He was well. He's retired now, but he was a historian at UPenn, and he was the co-founder of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, with Harvey Silverblade, um, and he was um, um, writing about a lot of the stuff, you know, in the uh, in the eighties, even and in, in the nineties. And he did a um, cover story for Reason in two thousand. Um, and it, I, I think it came out like shortly before. It, it, I mean, obviously, once nine eleven happened, the culture wars kind of shut down for a while. So you know, all of that stuff temporarily became pretty irrelevant. But you know, but he wrote about. Um, I think it was called Thought Control One Hundred One. And it was about these really creepy sort of diversity programs where, 
you know, they would do these exercises where white people were berated and, you know, humiliated in order to, like, make them understand how black people feel and that sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of it, I mean, I, I reread it recently and I was like, wow, like, this is like Robin D'Angelo like, 20 years ago, just with a different cast of characters. So, yeah, I mean, this stuff has been going on for a while. It's obviously gotten much more, you know, widespread uh, recently. And I think, uh, you know, again, like Lindsay has made some very, very good points in critiquing it. Um, I mean, I think that both, and I've written about this, I think that both he and Chris Rufo, uh, who has been like, who actually has done some very good reporting, again, like actually digging up documents, I think they tend to sometimes exaggerate and uh, like, uh, uh, you know, catastrophize. Uh, again, some of this, a lot of the stuff is genuinely bad, but, you know, to give you just one example, like there was, uh, uh, Chris Rofo, uh, has been re- claiming, like he's claimed more than once that there was a program for, uh, white men, uh, at, uh, Sandia Labs, which is like a federal contractor that does a lot of, uh, like research related to nuclear, uh, something. I mean, it's, I, I think it's actually like a defense department related program. So yeah, anyway. So he claimed that they had like a retreat for white males in which, uh, you know, white men were told that, you know, white masculinity is associated with the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, and Nazis and whatever. And at the end of this three-day retreat, they were ordered to write letters of apology to women and minorities. Well, I looked over the documents and, yeah, there was some ridiculous stuff there. But, I mean, the, the, well, for, 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 first of all, like, the, the part about white, white maleness being associated with Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan that was actually in the context of sort of talking about like unf- the way that white men can be unfairly stereotyped. Mm. So it's like, I think the participants themselves like were asked to like, compile a list of like white male, like, stereotypical depictions of white maleness or something and like they came up with like you know i think the idea was that well like sometimes like you know there's an assumption that like if you're a white male like you're 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 practically like five minutes away from being in a kkk um and you know and there were also completely innocuous stuff on there you know on the same list you know like likes red meat which is very relevant this week of course because we're all having this, you know, ridiculous uh, kerfuffle about Joe yeah. Biden supposedly mm-hmm. wanting to ban red meat. You know, it was stuff like baseball was on there. It was like basically like everything positive and negative, I think, that mm-hmm. people associate with, you know, white masculine, white maleness or, you know, or being a white male. So it really wasn't at all what, you know, Rufo was claiming. And the letter of apology, um, basically they, yeah, the, like the, 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 the Guys who participated in this program were told at the end to write a letter to women and a letter to minorities. And I do think that that's a ridiculous exercise. You know, you don't collectively write letters to, you know, an entire demographic of people. I mean, that's, you know, that's stereotyping. Uh, But, like, I think there were of the, like, 15 letters, I think, the total, there were maybe three 
that had this sort of apology tone where somebody like, oh, yeah, it was sort of sounded stuff like, you know, I'm sorry that I've never really thought about the things you go through. I mean, it wasn't even very particularly groveling. It was more like, you know, I'm going to try to do better to be a good coworker and so on and so forth. Um, most of them, though, weren't apologetic at all. I mean, most of them were stuff like, you know, I'm really glad that I learned about some of the workplace dynamics and the hopefully this will. I mean, a lot of it, by the way, was very sort of corporate new agey stuff like, oh, you know, like this is really going to help us develop trust and understanding, uh, like, oh, you know, be better people and so on and so forth. So really, I mean, a lot is the kind of stuff. Fitter, happier, more productive. Yeah, yeah, kind of, ba- basically. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, your standard uh, Taylorism you know, corporate, corporate workshop, except mm-hmm. with a kind of woke spin. Uh, so, you know, I, I think some of it is exaggerated. Some of the stuff is genuinely, genuinely bad. You know, uh, mm-hmm. like there is, uh, like there, 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 there's certainly been like the, some of the documents that Rufo has publicized really are sort of in the spirit of, you know, come and confess your white privilege and, you know, uh, talk about the ways in which you have harmed women and minorities in the workplace and, you know, talk about unfair advantages that your family has enjoyed, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, there was some other program that uh, sort of urged people to uh, analyze like how many of the movies that they've re- watched recently had people of color or you know gays or you know, transgender people in that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think that that this is this really is very very bad stuff, and uh, I don't think it belongs in the workplace. It certainly doesn't belong in a like federally funded workplace. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I certainly agree with that. So what happened was that um, uh, because uh, Lindsay and Rufo were pushing this stuff, you know, Tucker Carlson ended up talking mm-hmm. about it. And um, and I think he had, I don't think he had Lindsay on the show at that point, but he had Rufo on the show. And Rufo, by the way, is a guy who uh, works for the Discovery Institute, which is a, uh, as you know, which yeah. is a... Uh, uh, intelligent design pushing out that, which is, you know, all kinds of ironic, you know, considering mm-hmm. that Lindsay is this big, you know, Mr. Atheist. Um, so, uh, then, of course, um, our, you know, the former guy, as, as Biden says, you know, the former guy, uh, got his policy ideas from, you know, Fox and Friends and, you know, and, uh, the Tucker Carlson show. So he watches, uh, this Tucker Carlson segment on uh, critical legal theory and uh, you know diversity training, and then he issues a, a memo followed by a more kind of fully developed. Well, be, executive be explicit order. that you're talking about Trump. Oh yeah, right. Of course. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. we're talking about we're talking about our former president when when he was uh, still in office. Yeah. When he was still in when he was still the current president. So you know, yeah, this was in I think September or May. Yeah, I think it was September. Um, like it was very shortly before the election, and I think a lot of people interpreted it as sort of Trump, you know, trying to mobilize the base by, uh, you know, uh, doing all this sort of race. Well, what he, um, so banned... there was an executive order that right. banned, um, uh, banned, um, 
diversity training uh, based on, uh, and I think it was something like sex and race stereotypes. And I think there was also a mention of, of uh, critical theory. And it was just, it was very weirdly formulated. It was very badly written. Um, I mean, I don't know like if Trump had remained president, there probably would have been a legal challenge to this. And I'm, I don't know that it would have stood up in court because of, you know, if only because it was so like broad and vague that there was absolutely no way of even being sure what exactly it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so that was, uh, that was one problem. So um, that's, that's a good example of, for anyone who's wondering why we want to talk about a guy like James Lindsay. He may have yeah. been in a direct causal chain to start inspiring the president to issue an executive order that affected the Yeah, yeah. Well, and of, course, Lindsay, and of course, Lindsay was overjoyed, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, like he um, tweeted about this and like he was like, thank you, Mr. President. Like, I think mm-hmm. he just really felt like you know, his hour had come because the, like, the, his work had actually inspired the president of the United States to, uh, you know, to do something uh, and not only to do something, but to actually fight. You know, he fights, as, as people say, but he fights. So he, there he was, like, fighting against uh, critical race theory. Right. And uh, this is when I think the meltdown really started. And um um, like Lindsay basically uh, don't. I mean, I don't know that. Um, I'm trying to remember if he actually did like urge people to vote for Trump. I think he did. I mean, he yeah. he definitely said that he was voting for Trump. And um, I, I listened to some of his podcasts, and it was definitely ah uh, okay, yeah, because you know, so. I, I yeah I don't subject myself to that. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's interesting because Helen at that point, uh, Helen was at that point the editor of uh, this magazine, or one of the two editors was uh, Iona Italia of this magazine called um, uh, Ario, which is a kind of like. You know, it's not anti-woke, but it's kind of like, you know, centrist, enlightenment-based, uh, you know, sort of classically liberal ideas. And a lot of it is sort of critiques of, of uh, wokeness. Um, uh, so Helen um, uh, got 14, I think, uh, critics of wokeness, including myself, to write short pieces about like, why you shouldn't vote for Trump if you're uh, against uh, the sort of radical social justice movement. And, um, uh, and that came out, I think, shortly after uh, Lindsay endorsed Trump. Uh, she, I don't, uh, you know, I, I know that they're personal friends, you know, Helen and, and Jim, and she has said that she's not going to, you know, repudiate him um, personally. But this was very clearly a kind of declaration of, like, you know, being on the other side of the barricades on the Trump issue. I'm not with stupid. <laughs> yeah, basically. Right. And, uh, you know, Lindsay's followers were incredibly nasty to people who were 
um, who were anti-Trump. Uh, and not just that, that they, were take, they were clearly taking their cues from him in being extremely nasty. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I remember that some of them were like very, very vehemently attacking um, people who had, again, who had been sort of allies to the uh, the sort of anti-woke movement, like Sam Harris, who mm-hmm. also took a very, very sort of anti-Trump position. I mean, I remember that I unfollowed and muted this one woman who was sort of a very, very um, uh, kind of passionate uh, James Lindsay fan who tweeted something that just incredibly nasty about Sam Harris that was like, you know, it was something about, you know, his his uh, mind being shriveled and stunted by you know, Trump derangement syndrome. I was like, okay, you know, I'm out of here, you know. <laughs> yeah. So this was, uh, so this was, I think, the, the level to which um, this whole sort of coterie of, of James Lindsay fans uh, was starting to descend. And I mean, I, I, after that, I think it was just really from one low to the next. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I wrote about this, and I have a piece in um, in Eric um, Digital, which is now in Substack, um, uh, and where I have a newsletter. <laughs> you know, um, where I that that was actually my first newsletter. Uh, it was this uh, fairly long piece about um, uh, about the sort of Lindsay's descent into on crankdom. Um, he started doing this really, really weird stuff on COVID-19, uh, where, you know, and it sort of went beyond uh, questioning specific benefits of lockdowns. Like, he, he didn't actually come out and say that like, the whole thing was a conspiracy that was concocted to, you know, seize control of, uh, you know, free society, but he really came pretty close to that. Let me I'm looking right now at my piece and uh, yeah, like this is like one um, uh, um, like most recently has been uh, has been on the sort of anti-vax train. Uh, Like this is an actual uh, James Lindsay tweet from March 31st. LOL. I already know more people who have had severe life-changing or threatening side effects to the vaccines than I do people who have had severe cases of the virus. Even if these vaccines, quote unquote, solve the manufactured problem, damages are going to be significant. Lawsuits, who knows? So this is where we're at right now with Lindsay. Um, and, you know, prior to that, he was suggesting that, um, you know, the, the, the woke elites were going to use COVID-19 to institute, uh, like global control oh, yeah. economy, the great reset. I don't know if you ever came across that. And, you know, I should add, by the way, that, you know, that was actually taken from some website where some people were talking about and there there were like fairly elite people who were were using this sort of you know hyperbolic language to talk about how you know the pandemic and the uh you know the um the 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 kind of changes in the economy as a result of uh you know long distance work and so on and so forth and like all of these 
changes uh, should be an opportunity for, and I think someone did use the word great reset, which obviously sounds good to someone, but of course, you know, that really does kind of feed into all this conspiracy theory stuff. Um, you know, so I, but, you know, that doesn't mean that there is an actual conspiracy. And Lindsay really did kind of go down the road of suggesting that, you know, this was being used to, uh, uh, to take over the world and and um, he definitely got on the um, on the election fraud train. Um, uh, and by the way, interestingly, uh, I found out while writing this our digital piece that he was actually talking about um, Trump losing because of voter fraud before the election. So like he was, it wasn't even like that he was taking his cue from Trump necessarily. Uh, this is a tweet of his from October 30th. Uh, most 2020 timeline is Trump loses narrowly on November 3rd by official count, challenges it, hard proof of voter fraud uncovered and real numbers are Trump win, media suppresses it and gaslights it away. So this is where, again, this is where James Lindsay was at in late October. Um, and um, after the election, um, well, okay, first of all, like he developed this really annoying shtick, and I mean, like, everything that he does on Twitter these days really can be described as an annoying shtick, so, yeah, you know. really bad. Um, yeah, so... Um, like he wasn't initially necessarily getting on board of the voter fraud narrative, but one thing that he started doing, like he decided, like when people would talk about, uh, like would express concern about, um, you know, Trump's baseless claims of massive election fraud, uh, Lindsay would jump in there and kind of use it to mock the uh, kind of the white fragility trope. Like, I don't know if you saw any of that. Like, he started talking about, like, oh, well, if you if you deny that election fraud has occurred, you just have election fraud fragility. And, you know, ostensibly he was mocking this sort of, uh, you know, uh, Robin D'Angelo um, reasoning that, you know, if if you're triggered by being called a racist, you know, that's white fragility. Uh, and OK, like I could see doing that joke like once or twice. But first of all, he ran with it forever. Uh, secondly, it was just after the first few times, it was extremely obvious that he was using this to like mock and dismiss people's concerns about uh you know Trump whipping up voter fraud hysteria. So, you know, it's like, you know, he was sort of like, you know, objectively as as they used to say in like debates about remember there was the the the, the the, like in the 30s, I think there was this phrase like objectively pro-Nazi or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, um, so yeah, so what Lindsay was doing, like really de facto, was uh, doing pro-Trump spin by, um, you know, turning, t turning the whole issue into this, like, satire of white fragility. This goes beyond spin, yeah. though. I mean, yeah, this is really distorting yeah, of course. Of course. And eventually he did uh, pretty openly come out and say that, uh, you know, there was uh, there was enough evidence to believe that 
uh, yeah, like he, he appeared, um, I, I'm just again looking at my, um, uh, my article here where I had some of these tweets, like he, um, he appeared, uh, like on, uh, on a podcast, uh, appearance that he was on, uh, he, uh, on February 5th, he said that there was a lot of ambiguity and, you know, strong evidence of irregularities that matched known patterns of election misfeasance. And he repeated the sort of debunked claim that, um, you know, in some places the vote was suspended and restarted again with a large jump in numbers uh, that shifted the numbers to Biden. And the thing that I well, found really interesting, like considering that such a big part of his message is that he's this critic of, you know, postmodernism and subjectivism, like he said on a number of occasions that, well, you know, there's just there's a feeling of manipulation around this election. Like a lot of people have this feeling that there was election fraud or some sort of manipulation, and therefore you should take these claims seriously. Like, you know, what happened to being a critic of subjectivism? Like suddenly now, and it's funny because again, like when it comes to, for instance. Uh, you know, people feeling that there's racism in yeah. situations where he doesn't think it's present. You know, he's extremely aware that, you know, when, when there's a feeling that there's misogyny and, you know, in, in this or that academic discipline, like, of course, he's going to be extremely derogatory about that. And, uh, you know, and this is like the, uh, the, right-wing version of microaggressions basically like well people feel that uh that they've been cheated so yeah and just, then of course the anti-semitism thing shall, shall we discuss that because <laughs> uh, that was the low you, point can, yeah i mean can you do it quickly yeah because i know that okay. we've we've already covered a tremendous amount of stuff but yeah by the way whatever whatever we get through there's more Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot yeah. with this. And guy. you know, <laughs> one thing, one point that I want to make before I get to before I get to the anti-Semitism part, because yeah. you know there is just so much. Uh, one point that I made in my piece uh, on Arc, and I think this is kind of salient beyond uh, you know Lindsay, because we, I really don't want don't want it to be so much about you know personalities. It's not like mm-hmm. I have a personal beef with Lindsay because. Honestly, you know, I don't like. Well, other people are falling into this trap. Yeah, as you, yeah. yeah, and I think partly it's it's the temptation, like when you're a kind of dissenter from mainstream culture, mm-hmm. and you question a lot of narratives in like the mainstream media, which I think you know there are excellent reasons to do at this point. I mean, I do think that right now the mainstream media are really pretty terrible in a lot of things like you know like if you look at some of the initial coverage of this you know makia bryant shooting where you know people ran with this idea that you know the this cop uh, arrived when she called for help and you know shot her completely unprovoked and you know then it turns out that she was actually about to stab another person so you know i think the media really have been terrible in a lot of these issues i mean there's no doubt about it i mean even like uh, i i had a couple of articles out about the whole like narrative around police shootings where yeah like there is racial bias but like the, this idea that only black people get you know shot by the police when they're not doing anything wrong it, it is just completely ridiculous i mean you know it, 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 it's it's really not so yeah there is a lot of 
you know, uh, unreliable stuff. And there's a lot of kind of agenda driven stuff going on in the media, no question about it. And my point is when, you know, when you're a dissenter from the mainstream media, from mainstream narratives, I think it's very easy. And I think this should be a lesson to all of us and a kind of warning to all of us. Uh, to not fall into the sort of uh, temptation of knee-jerk contrarianism, right. because I think this is one of one thing that has happened to Lindsay and to a bunch of other. I mean, I'm incredibly disappointed in like Majid Nawaz, who I've greatly admired. Like he, I don't know, he, do, do you know Majid uh, at all? I mean, he's the sort of very little. I I know that he wrote a book with Sam Harris about. Yeah, yeah, he's an ex like Islamist radical who has become a uh, sort of liberal Muslim, and he's been writing about this, you know, Muslim reform. And you know, he's uh, gotten into the whole like intellectual dark web uh, set, and he's gone down the road of like the election fraud and you know COVID nineteen paranoia. So you know what is even going on with people. So yeah, I mean, I do think that to some extent it's the kind of contrarian temptation, and I think we all, you know, all of us sort of counterculture people uh, have to be on guard against it, and I think that's why the subject is important beyond Lindsay. And you know, one thing that unfortunately often happens when you go down the road of you know, contrarianism with a right-wing slant is that you get to a point where things start to get weird about Jews. And, you know, and unfortunately, (laughs) you know, this is the road that uh, Lindsay has kind of gone down. And I don't want to say that he's, you know, again, to to emphasize, I really don't want to say that he's anti-Semitic. Because you know, I, I I see absolutely no evidence of that. Uh, but you know, he 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 uh, back in January, he wrote this tweet uh, which said, um, you know, anti-Semitism is on the rise again. Truly, wokeness contains left-wing anti-Semitism. Normal right-wing anti-Semitism has flared up because of conditions and identity politics. And then the the last line says, extra right-wing anti-Semitism is arising because lots of progressive Jews are nonsensically woke. <laughs> now, let's unpack this. I mean, I actually agree with Lindsay, and but he, you know, it, to that extent, he's not the first person to write about this. You know, other people, John Paul Pagano, J- Jamie Kirchick have written about this in Tablet. Uh, there is a certain element in wokeness, this sort of this obsession with privilege uh, that really can... Um, kind of transform into uh, things with an anti-Semitic flavor where, you know, if because there's a whole, like this came up also during the Women's March, this sort of idea that Jews have Jews have a special responsibility to examine their white privilege and, you know, their role in the oppression of people of color, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there is just uh, a lot of very, very creepy stuff out there. I agree with that. I mean, I think if if that had been the extent of what Lindsay said, you know, absolutely no problem. And I think I, I think it's also true that generally when you kind of steer people towards seeing everything in terms of identity, yeah, it's also going to, you know, kind of encourage a lot of really ugly stuff on the right because, you know, suddenly it becomes okay to classify people by, you know, race, religion, etc. Yeah. All right. So this enables a lot of really, really bad stuff. Uh, the problematic, as they say, you know, part is where he says that apparently like people or some people are going to react 
to the uh, presence of, uh, you know, nonsensically woke Jews by becoming anti-Semitic, which is ridiculous, by the way, because, uh, like, yeah, I mean, are there Jews? Uh, I mean, first of all, there are, there are a lot of Jews in the media. You know, we all, I mean, there, there are a lot of Jews on, you know, in academia. I mean, those are areas where Jews kind of tend to gravitate. And you can find them all over the political spectrum. Like, you know, only recently it was neocons and, you know, what uh, you know, like it's a spectrum that spans everything from, you know, the late Sheldon Adelson to David Cleon. Yeah. You know? so, True. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, so the idea that, I mean, anyone who looks at a ridiculously woke Jew and yeah. thinks, oh, you know, look at those woke Jews as opposed to, my God, look at those ridiculously woke people. Because, right. you know, there really isn't, like, a specific association between being woke and being Jewish. I mean, I don't really see, like, any woke Jewish people specifically, like, framing their wokeness in terms of their Jewishness. So, really, I mean, this idea that anyone who isn't already anti-Semitic is going to react to woke Jews by, you know, by becoming anti-Semitic is absurd. Because, yeah, you so- know, and it's really the modern, yeah, I, if I can just make one real, real quick point, I think it's the modern day version of, uh, you know, Nazism was a reaction to, uh, you know, Jewish Bolshevism, which is a trope that you can find on the right. I mean, Stefan Molyneux, who's this nutty, okay. you know, far right podcaster, has made the argument that, you know, yeah, of course, the Holocaust was bad, but, you know, it was just an overreaction to Jewish Bolshevism. So I think in a way, you know, I don't want to say that, Linda, God forbid, you know, that Lindsay is, you know, making any sort of apologies for Nazis or the Holocaust. But I mean, that line of argument really does kind of feed into this sort of, you know, blame, you know, blaming Jews for anti-Semitism is really, you know, once you've gone down that road, I mean, you know, that's a pretty dark place to end up in. And I think the, the the way to back into it is just like, what sort of person would notice like, hey, uh, Jason Stanley and Lena Dunham, uh, yeah, so these other people, David Kleon, are Jews, and not notice John Podhoritz and Jesse Single, yeah, exactly, and Kathy yeah. Young, and right, right. all these other people are Jews. The only person who would think that is somebody who's always is an thinking yeah. the Jew is under the lot. Yeah, so um, oh yeah, 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 yeah so, no, absolutely, yeah. So I, I, I mean, it's a nonsensical argument. It. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a ridiculous argument. And, you know, and I think that it sort of shows, not that Lindsay is anti-Semitic, but that when you start going down the road of sort of channeling and, um, uh, you know, sort of um, mainstreaming in a way these, you know, far-right arguments, this is where you can end up. And and I think that's that's the real danger. And, you know, to me, the danger is also that really, you know, I say this as, as somebody who's anti-woke, that, you know, Lindsay is really discrediting like, the, yeah. the critique of wokeness. And of course, Lindsay thinks that I'm crypto woke you uh, know that's the that's uh yeah like i've uh it's a term yes. for somebody who's anti-woke and has an intellectual conscience 
<laughs> yeah, basically. So, you know, I mean, I think ultimately this is all very bad for the state that's, of intellectual discourse. Yeah, so that's a good place to end up because this is our I'm not with stupid moment, which is yeah. um, uh, people have been turned away from anti-wokeness because of the terrible arguments that a lot of the IDWs are. And for people who have been turned off, we want to say, take a second look because um, you... Some of us are sane. (laughs) Yes. Kat Rosenfield and um, Phoebe Maltz-Movie and Jesse Single and Katie Herzog and Connor Friedersdorf are not like that, I promise you. And there's a substantial critique that's not... And I'm completely confident none of those people are going to end up in crazy. Absolutely. Oh, no. No, no, no. Definitely not. Um, Um, All right. So I did want to put... There's one more thing I wanted to say before we leave the subject. Um, Do you remember when... Hillary Clinton was clashing with Black Lives Matter protesters. Yeah. She she had yeah. some people tried to talk over her and prevent her from speaking. And she sort of reasoned with them and said, let's talk afterwards. Uh-huh. And they had a right. back, backstage conversation on camera. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And um, there was this moment where this young black kid, who was one of the BLM activists said to her, they were talking about her, work in the 90s, super predators, the crime bill, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, I want to know in your heart what has changed. And Mm -hmm. she responded, I don't believe you change hearts. I believe you change laws, you change allocation of resources, you change Mm. the way systems operate. Mm, That's an interesting point. And there was a remarkable moment. It was the only moment I remember um, that I liked Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because, and that's really an iconic, you know, 50 years from now, a social yeah. history of this moment will begin with that conflict. Wow. Because mm. um, what you have there. I'll are have to tw- look that up because I completely forgot that. Yeah. Uh, We'll link to it. So, okay. Um, well, we have two visions of politics facing each other in that moment. Um, there's the woke version, which believes politics is the kind of odyssey of the soul, that to be political is to sort of go inside, sort of Christopher Lash stuff. You mm. go inside and you change what's in you. It's this kind of um, confessional idea. And there's an idea that politics is um, getting together with people and lobbying and changing behavior and allocation of resources, laws, systems, and things that operate out in the world. It's it's us going out and changing things out in the world. Now, the interesting thing about James Lindsay is that like the woke, he is on the Black Lives Matter side of his understanding Ah, of politics. So he said, he tweeted once, the woke hate me because I'm authentic, fully authentic. (laughs) 
And authenticity is the one thing they can't abide. Add that I'm consummately principled, good God, <laughs> and that I know their game at least as well as they do, and I'm intolerable. And I will agree that he's intolerable. Um, but, you know, a lot of people made sport with this particular tweet, not least of all, fearless leader of Arc Digital, Bernie Belvedere. Uh, <laughs> I thought. And, and that was entirely fair. But at the same time, you know, as we learned with Trump, you got to take these ridiculous things seriously. He was telling us something about his politics. His politics mm. is the politics of authenticity. And this, oh, this yeah. came out in his conversation with Glenn Lowry. At, he felt that the woke hadn't really reckoned in themselves with their own mm-hmm. racism and that he had. And, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, <sighs> and I want to say is, I am, and I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me, you are, on the Hillary Clinton side of what politics is. So I want an anti-woke politics that's a real politics. That's not just about self-expression. It's not uh, another club, just that's sort of the opposite of the woke. Yeah, Um, totally. Yeah. It's not a place to get affirmed online or to have your opinions no. validated. It's about there are some bad ideas out there and they're having bad effects in the world. And we really want to oppose the effects that yeah. they're having and yeah. challenge the ideas behind them. Absolutely. So if if anybody thinks uh, they could get involved in an anti-wokeism like that, it's out there for you to find. Yes. So Absolutely. <laughs> And that's why we can't get along with James Lindsay and why the enemy of our enemy is not our friend. Oh, yeah. That's 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 the major takeaway here. So, Kathy, do you have any, you want to plug anything? Well, you know, I think that uh, I'm, I I guess I could plug our digital. It's, uh, you know, you can find it at um, arcdigital.media. Uh, that's easy enough. And then on the main page, you can find a link to, uh, uh, to my newsletter. Um, and of course, we love for people to subscribe, although most of our material eventually goes on paywall. But, you know, if you, you, you always want to get, you know, the first and fresh look. So do subscribe, please, or at least yeah. get on our mailing list, uh, such as the way of Substack. <laughs> and and Arc Digital's, um, uh, it's not just one person. It's a bunch of different people who actually disagree right, on right. things. Unlike the usual yeah, kind yeah. of Substack. Model. Yeah, we really are a uh, website that, uh, and we began in Medium. We are, we have recently made our move to Substack. Uh, we are genuinely con- committed to um, intellectual pluralism. Uh, you know, without includes disagreeing with each other. Uh, we have even published some woke people, and uh, you know, if they can converse with others in a civilized way why not you know that's uh, that's what 
you know, the process of hashing out ideas really is. Um, so, you know, we certainly encourage, by the way, submissions from anyone who has ideas and who wants to argue them in a rational and tolerant manner. Um, so, you know, that's, I guess that is my plug for, for today. Uh, and of course, you know, I am also associated with Reason Magazine. So, you know, reason.com is always there. Um, and that's it. Yep. Yeah. Well, we gave them a lot for their money. So absolutely. 